welcome to Globally Speaking, a podcast about connecting with global audiences. Globally Speaking is designed to explore the challenges involved in breaking down language and communication barriers. Our hosts and guests, thought leaders and industry experts, discuss their experiences on a range of topics relating to content, communication and customer engagement. Welcome to today's episode. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of the Globally Speaking Podcast. I'll be your host today. My name is Andrew Thomas. I'm a Senior Director of Marketing here at RWS. And this is the second part in a series that we're doing, focusing on the overall uh, translation supply chain, um, where we're interviewing uh, freelance translators, language service providers, and corporations uh, who are all the primary stakeholders in this industry and kind of getting a take from uh, every each and every stakeholder. And today, hopefully I, I don't mess up the pronunciation here, uh, I am joined by Rosario Dezeas Reda, and she is the CEO of Tatutrad, uh, which is a thriving LSP in Spain. Uh, but obviously, I'd like guests to kind of introduce themselves. So without further ado, uh, I'd like to turn it over to you, Rosario, to just give us a background on who you are and your company. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, first of all. Yeah, you, you pronounced my name perfectly. I am Rosario, and I've been around for a while. Let's start from now. And if you want to back, we can go backward afterwards. Currently, as you mentioned, I'm the CEO. I founded Tattoo Trad, I would say, 17 years ago already. And I grew organically, as many other translators do, from becoming a freelancer, working for companies. And then I decided to come back to my home, home country and set up, uh, firstly, a single language vendor provider. And then finally, we became a globalized LSP for for clients from all around the world. So yeah, it's 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 been quite a ride, and I would like to share it with you. That that sounds great. Um, so yeah, why don't you take us back to the beginning? How did you even get into the localization industry? I would say I'm not part of the first lock uh, generation, but I would say I'm the second one. Everything was already set up. I, I finished my university degree. I studied English philology. I don't think that even exists in America, but it's like a very European thing to study. So I had my master's in translation, so I didn't even know what localization was at that time. My, my university teachers didn't know either. So it was like 1996 when I graduated. And at that moment, the internet was really being becoming a big thing. So I started surfing the web. It, it, was, it was not like it is today. But I started seeing this localization job posts that I found pretty amazing because they were actually looking for people speaking Spanish that had a, a, a good knowledge in computers and they, they were really, they really liked computers. And I thought that was me. So I just mixed the two passions that I have, languages and computers, and decided to, to apply for one of those jobs, even though I didn't know what it was really about. So it was kind of risky. But I guess that many of us got into it like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we I got into the local industry, I want to say, in like 
98, 97, 98. So around the same time. And yeah, absolutely. It's, it does seem like there was this, uh, for a lot of us who fell into it, this kind of crossover between a love of language and if not a love of technology, at least a willingness to embrace technology. Um, that seems to have been a common thread in the past. So my, my my starting point was working with IBM in Raleigh, North Carolina. So I really learned everything there. I, I remember I was pretty amazed when I got to Raleigh that I had someone waiting for me at the airport asking me, are you the linguist engineer? And I was like, I'm not an engineer. I just study languages. Probably I'm not the right person here. But it, it, it was the, the way we were treated at that time. It was like something starting. We didn't even got the proper names yet. We didn't even have the roles really, really set at that time. So it was pretty amazing being there back in, in the 90s. <laughs> it's it's fascinating to me because we almost might be coming full circle now with the advent of so much AI impacting our industry in that language engineers is kind of what a lot of translators are, are transitioning to now as they work on some of these AI projects. So maybe maybe it's just a full circle uh, sort of thing. Um, so tell us what happened after your first experience at IBM? What, what happened after that? I'm really curious. After that, I, I decided to become a freelancer because I was asked, for so many other companies asked me to join them on certain projects. So I remember working, wow, with a Altvista and and uh, with Netscape at that time, so I, I yeah you remember that. So I went I went to the Celtic Tiger at that time. I moved and lived in Ireland, so I I worked with all the companies around there. You know at that time everything was going on there. I learned so much. Again, it was learning by doing. We didn't really have the chance to get a master degree in localization. There was nothing like that at that time. So you, you also fed, and I've been living with that all my life. Like you were feeling somebody else's job. I was feeling like an imposter sometimes. And I still feel like that. <laughs> I don't know why. But because now I even teach at university to other new new generations coming to the industry. But you always keep that feeling. I talk to many other colleagues from the same generation, and we all have that feeling. I come from a linguistic background, but we built the industry, but don't really feel like you are part of it. Isn't it weird? <laughs> yeah, imposter syndrome, I think, is very real. I think we all, I think everybody struggles with that to some extent. But I think to your point, I've done some other things in, in my life where you're just kind of inventing it or creating it as you go. And whenever you create it as you go, eventually somebody comes to you and and expects you to like be knowledgeable about the right way or the best way to do things and i think that's for me what triggers my imposter syndrome because i think well we just kind of did it we just sort of made it up and and that happened to work so uh, is that the right way uh, i don't know but it seems to work you know that, that seems to be the the <laughs> for me that's when it comes up but uh um i'm curious once you made the shift from working for IBM to being a freelancer, um, because we are obviously looking at uh, thinking about technology in the intersection. Like, what were you doing to kind of grapple with having different clients? Because when you know, we spoke to a freelancer before, and one of the I think one of the challenges they face is literally just dealing with all the different kinds of work that comes their way. And so, at that time, what were you doing? How are you addressing that? 
I would say that at that time, clients were very patient. They will train you all the time. They were really, really teaching you. Nowadays, I remember jobs I did that were awful at that time, but they were so patient. They would come back to you and say, listen, this is not the way we would like things to be done. So it was like learn, as I mentioned, learning by doing. And they were very, they, they will train you with all their tools. At that time, there were not so many tools. I remember working with cat tools, for instance, right from the beginning. So it was IBM gestation tool first and then Trados right afterwards. I remember buying my first Trados. It was Trados number two, Trados two. <laughs> it was like a bunch of floppy disks sent to me. You know, that still came with the dongles to plug into the computer probably? Yeah, yeah. that was it. Yeah. Parallel port, yeah, for the, with, a, with a printer, yeah. That was a while ago. But then there were not so many tools regarding card tools we could deal with. So it wasn't that hard to move from one request to another. I must say that at that time, quality was not as important as it is today. We, we did have quality processes to be followed, but there were no tools. Xbench and tools like that did not exist at that time. Well, and I think arguably the the expectation of the customers wasn't there yet because so much of the world just never got translated content before these this industry was established and it's it's like anything where as soon as somebody gets uh, access to something and their quality of life improves then they start to have expectations of it and if you take it away they get upset or if you deliver it in a poor way they get upset but if they never had it to begin with they're just happy to receive it. And so I think you were, we're kind of at that point in, in the timeline where their customers were just happy to get things trans in their language at all, let alone, you know, meet certain quality expectations. If, if memory, if your memory is like mine, that's what I remember back in the oh, day. Yeah. And they, they were relevant. They were really very thankful that you were working for them. And I remember uh, I had some clients that hired me for what we call today QA, final QA. They would say cultural sign-off. So I was in charge of, you know, signing off some products so to tell them that they are ready to be sold in Spain because I was mainly working for the Spanish technology industry at that time. So I would take care of the sign-offs and maybe it would take me months to go through a QA and the product was there waiting for months. You know, the, the, the rhythm, the path was different. It will take us like nine months to work. <laughs> yeah, and nobody would product. take that long anymore. That would be, you'd be out of a job. You'd be out of business if you waited nine months to ship software. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you don't have such, such large projects anymore to work with. I miss that. I miss that having long, large products. So you get in touch with the development team and you really become like family, become like really, really close. Nowadays, you only get small updates and it's, 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 you don't get that feeling of belonging to a large project anymore. It's, it's, everything is faster now. Right. Much, much more incremental, smaller, like probably more volume overall, but just divided into smaller projects and files, yeah? And, and and for me, also the idea of sometimes I've been working in a product longer than anyone actually working at that company. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's I've like been I've saying, been translating for your product longer than you've been selling your product. So trust me when I tell you that, yeah, uh, that's, yeah, we, we do see that a lot, I think, in this industry. That's hilarious. Absolutely. Um, 
So after you made the transition to freelancer, what came next for you? Okay, so I was living in Ireland and I spent like five years over there working with with MLVs, with direct clients, learning a lot from all of them. But then suddenly I decided it was time for me to come back home and really, my idea right from the beginning, I had this entrepreneur spirit inside of me. My idea was to come back to Spain and really set up something for, because I knew many people were studying translation in Spain, but nobody knew about localization as a, as a way of living at that time. Because, you know, in Spain, we have many languages involved within the same country. So we are multilingual people and really we have been receiving visitors and tourists for many, many years. So we are really into languages, believe it or not. But nobody knew about localization. So for me, coming back to Spain and setting up a small, my idea at the beginning was like a small group of translators to call colleagues I've been studying with and tell them, listen, there is such a big thing going on here that you can really learn not it's not that difficult to learn and become part of it it was not a company at the beginning it was like a group of translators but we were so busy at that time and they really like the idea of a, a few people getting together and like we call now a boutique small company taking care of everything for your own target market. So that became very successful and clients were, were very happy with that. Even we were dealing with both with large MLVs and small clients. Everybody alike will, will, like, will enjoy the, the services we were offering. And just for folks on the listeners of the podcast, just in case they're not familiar, because I, I, I always like to you know define any acronyms or industry terms. MLV means multiple or multi-language vendor. So these were the larger LSPs that were servicing clients in many different languages, and they would come to you as a as an SLV, a single language vendor, even though that you weren't calling yourself an SLV at this point, you were just a, a collection of translators who all translated, I guess, into Spanish, correct? Spanish, Catalan, you know, all the Iberian languages. Spain-based lang languages, exactly. I should say, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and of course, that's obviously a common practice where you have you know, a corporation that wants to get something translated in many different languages, they sometimes want to interact with the individual uh, single language vendors discreetly, but more often than not, they might only want to interact with a multi-language vendor or a couple of multi-language vendors, uh, just from a sheer kind of overhead and managerial perspective. But then that work often does trickle down to single language vendors, and then that work trickles down sometimes to freelance translators, which is kind of the whole point of this uh, three-part series that we're doing right now. It's just to make that clear to everybody, because um, I often think we've talked about the generations in localization. And you know, if you were here when the industry formed, and in the early days, it all makes sense. But if you're coming to it new... And you're only coming to it from one side of the spectrum. If you're only coming to it as a freelance translator or you're only coming to it as like a, a brand new company that's wanting to get something translated, you might not know just how complicated and how many layered this supply chain can get. And which is why, you know, on the surface, sometimes we have clients that expect simple answers to their questions when in fact they are sometimes quite complicated. And I think that's always a, a bit of surprise to them. And to me, it's because they sometimes don't know what the supply chain is really like. Um, 
So anyway, bit of that aside for defining the, the terms. Um, so now you're this collective of translators. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you make the leap to become an actual uh, corporation or company or whatever your next leap was? Yeah, we, we became a company not long after I moved into Spain. I would say two years later. And we realized that we had a knowledge that not many people had at that time, and that was technology. We were we were very eager to learn new tools, to test new ways of doing things. And, and, and that gave like another value to our job. At that time, believe it or not, young people out there, some people were still struggling with cut tools. They were not really sure about where to go. And we were already doing some post-editing at that time. I'm talking about early, early 2000, I would say, yeah. So we were already post-editing and even transcreating, even, even though the, the, the term was not there yet. <laughs> right. We That's what you were basically doing. Yeah, we were both transcreating and doing post-editing, working on marketing material, taking care of SEO at that time. And for us, that was that was the final decision. Finally, being marketing translators, we the, the, the client, the even um, even localization companies wanted to know us. They wanted to meet us. They wanted to know our names. Suddenly, we became we became some someone important for our clients because we were the ones deciding the, the marketing campaigns in, the, in in Spain, and we were part of their company. Finally, we did not become translators, but become partners. Can you go a little bit more into detail on that? Like, what was how did your embrace of technology enable that? What were some of the shifts that you can remember, or some of the ways in which technology helped you uh, during that time? Well, at that, at that time, we, um, of course, we were ahead of, uh, we were using technology. We have never worked without a cut tool. We were using XBench. We've been using it for over 20 years. A quality measurement. Even before the the ISO uh, certification was on, the standard was was already on. We, most of, of the people working in the lock industry were already following the procedures that were established afterwards. So, like, we, we have everything very serialized. It was, actually, we knew what each step involved even before it was told by the standard. And we were embracing it. We had, we were... We, we had Trados. We were even training our own engines at that time. Your uh, machine I, translation engines. Yes. I was very lucky because I was working at university at that time. As no, not many people in Spain knew about translation technology at that time, I had the chance to teach in several master degrees. I got in touch with the best people. So we got together and really learned from each other study going to seminars and congresses around the world on that a lot. So we were already training our own engines for and that's how we actually make the the, the leap into direct clients, especially mm-hmm. local companies in Spain. At that time also we were very lucky that where in the area we work, the the Airbus you know, their air company, they built a factory here and they really had the need for international communication and, and translation. So it was a good time. It was the right time for us. You know, it, it sounds like a typical thing, but it's true. Being at the right time in the right place helps a lot. It helps a lot. I just want to do a little bit of a detour into machine translation. So at this time, if you were 
if you were training your own engines, is this this would be statistical MT at this point, or yeah, are you at already that time it was at that time of statistical? statistical? Okay, um, and you are already using that for post editing and as a service. We were using that, especially for you know not not very visible content like uh, machine cotton machine catalogs and and in, in you know instructions not very the type of things that maybe you get from a, an airplane manufacturing company. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And otherwise, they will never hire us. Like they will never go and because when I started teaching post editing or selling or translators. Embrace it. Don't don't be scared of it. It's a new way. You're gonna get new clients that otherwise you will never get, because here that the for instance olive oil industry is very big here in southern Spain, and they will they, they were never interested in translation because because it was very expensive for them to have all the machinery instructions translated. It was impossible for them. But now you you want the client because of that because you were offering kind of cheap post editing but at the end of the day they were calling you for all their marketing more difficult projects so it was our, the way for us to actually get the client yeah the, the foot in the door to use an english idiom uh to get in with a client and then grow the business which i it's also a i think a tried and true um business tactic of language service providers um in general um I am curious, though. Oh, go ahead, please. No, no. I was just going to say that it was difficult for me to move from my translation mind, like everything has to be perfect, quality is very important, and becoming a, a businesswoman and say, oh, listen, maybe the client does not need the perfect translation this time. Maybe it's a different kind of services that they are requesting at this moment. That, that was a very difficult shift. That was for me becoming a businesswoman and living a little bit behind the translation mind that everything has to be perfect. I absolutely love that because I think it the way I usually summarize that for people, because I, I, I talk to a lot of people that have that same struggle that you just described, it's not about the quality of the translation. It's about the quality of the business outcome that the client actually cares about. So yes, they do still care about quality, but they think about quality differently than you do as a translator. They think about, you know, if I've got a um, support portal with knowledge base articles that helps our, my customers uh, serve themselves and, and solve their own problems, if I can get just a percentage of those customers to solve their own problems by providing a machine translated version of that content. And they then don't call into my support organization, which is very costly for me as a company. Then I, then I feel I'm happy. It doesn't have to be a perfect translation as long as the customer is able to resolve the problem. And which is wildly different from, you know, a linguist perspective saying, okay, these two texts need to be, you know, representative and, equal to each other and, and and the translation has to be you know grammatically correct and all of those considerations um and that was a shift as you as you mentioned it's kind of perfectly timed with what you're talking about now i guess now we're in the it sounds like we're in the early 2000s or mid 2000s timeline wise um but I just have to do a quick detour now because of all of the ai that's in the market right now and all of the discussions around llms i mean Never mind the fact that we went from statistical MT to neural MT, and that was another leap. And now we've got these LLMs hitting the scene. 
as somebody who has always embraced technology, I just really just want to get your opinion. What do you, how do you feel about all of the news that's breaking today? And, and what's, what are your thoughts? What are your opinions? I mean, this is changing from day to day. First of all, like it's, it's, it's amazing the way that the industry is getting together more than ever, I would say. I haven't seen anything like this since we embrace MT. Now it's like more companies, op- we go to seminars and even it, it, congresses are f- full. AI is getting us together to think again about our industry. And I think that's a good starting point. Uh, getting together, reconsider and see what we're, good, we're doing next. I see the big MOVs reacting very quickly. They are already offering new services, what they call data curation. They call it uh, uh, cultural, cultural, cultural accuracy reviews. I like that. The cultural accuracy review. But at the end of the day, I, I see as a, a new service coming our way. And I really like it. It's pretty, it's changing from day to day. I don't know what it will become, but I do not foresee any danger <laughs> in our way of working. Probably the processes will adapt a little bit. But it, now I'm, I'm already, I'm already reviewing and adapting AI generated content. And it still needs, needs a little bit of of uh, review and I don't know if, we'll, if it will be in six months because the growth is exponential so because yeah you, you definitely have you have people out there that are hyping it up if you will for lack mm-hmm. of a better term and they think it will be the end all be all of everything and I feel like that's a little bit unrealistic you have the other side which is this whole conversation is similar to the when MT hit the scene because it was the same pattern happened back then you have a bunch of people that are like doom and gloom we're all going to be out of a job and everything and of course that's not realistic either and then I think the where you landed is I think the best I think also most uh, accurate place which is the roles will change, but the need for people remains. Um, and one of the things that we keep talking about is, you know, almost a, like the marriage between the human intelligence and the artificial intelligence where you get the best results, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it's good to hear that you guys are, that you're excited about it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like your your company early on did a pretty good job of diversifying the services that you offered, you, you mentioned you not only did you go into post editing, which might be offered at a lower price rate than traditional translations, but you also offered transcreation, which is oftentimes at a higher price point than regular translations. And so that I'm assuming through the diversification of your services, your business was able to grow. So maybe this is a good segue back to your timeline. What was what happened next for you? You were embracing MT. You're diversifying your services as a as a company. Mm-hmm. Are there any other milestones along the way that you want to mention? We became one of the most important companies in Spain. For me, setting up a company and being able to have colleagues come in and coming back to Spain and stay here for me is having running a business is like a social thing that I have to do. It's like my, it's something really, you make, you make your community grow. 
something to do for your community. And that, that for me, is the most rewarding part right now because uh, many people come out of university saying, well, what's next? What do we do next? And they have, a, they have the chance to stay in their hometown if they want and you grow. You can be there. that next thing for them as they come out of university. Yeah, that's quite lovely. Yeah, it is. It is great for them. They can choose. Some of them go abroad. I also recommend them to go, of course, but they can also grow from here, which is great. And I really appreciate being part of that. And then what's next for me is very important to go out there and let the people know that we are not we are not dying. <laughs> we, we're going to be here for a long time because maybe we won't be translators, but we will humanize texts are probably make it more poetic. What I, I see the future as a probably it will be more polarized. You will have to you you will have two different very different services at the at the polls. But then there is a whole array of things that we can do. Being linguists, there's, there's just no need. And trying at the university level where I teach, for me, it's like try to make the university teachers understand that this is not only linguists. It's there's so there's so much cross things that you need to learn and do to become a, a really good professional. And uh, I would say, yeah, keeping my clients happy for me, saying that I still keep my first customer. And it's been like 26 years already. It's such a success. <laughs> that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty amazing. I'd love to just also um, dig a little bit deeper into the tech that you're currently taking advantage of and kind of the history. You mentioned you started off early on with Cat Tools. You used Trotus, what is now Trotus Studio. Um, and you mentioned you had uh, Statistical MT, but mm -hmm. that was a, a couple of years back. So what does your, your technology stack look like today in okay. your organization? Nowadays, uh, if, if, as we work both for direct clients and, and MLVs, obviously when we work with MLVs, we follow their procedures and whatever they are, we stick to them. But for direct clients, we offer them different possibilities. Because I really think, I really think that we must be consultants, all of us. We have to go out there and let our clients know because they come to us. I'm sure it's happening to everybody now. Listen, we hear about AI. How can you use it in our environment? So it's for you to help them. I always, I, I always think that we as companies have the, when our clients require that, we use nothing, like not even support of MT. We use blank pages if the client requests that. It's very important. For the client to trust what you are doing and really because that's the only way you're going to build engagement from your clients so we uh, we also have a neural machine translation we also use ai now we are now training generative ai and the and the uh, and the um, the api the connector that Trados has with ai and now that chat gpt announced that they're going to have a a business version, an enterprise version where privacy is going to be kept. I'm sure we will try that and see how it goes. But now yeah, we're testing, we're testing to, to put them into our translation flow. You know, at, at RWS, uh, we like to talk about unlocking global understanding. And um, I think that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I'm just curious, you know, as an LSP, when you hear something like unlocking global understanding, what what does that mean to you? And what do you think about that? 
Well, I I think uh, about being the key for that lock, <laughs> mainly. <laughs> I mean, it's sad that it was locked before and actually is a good definition of the way I see us, our industry. We, we actually do that. We, we used to say we are a bridge, but now you are going in RWS even farther. We were locked and we're unlocking. For locksmiths. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I rather feel like we are the key to, to open that lock and really make global understanding possible. Yeah. There's too much there's too much global misunderstanding at the moment. I think we would all love for the understanding piece to increase. And I'm sure that you have the feeling that I felt going, I don't know, to to Log World or Gala and you see people from thirty different countries having dinner together and you get to see It's wonderful. How come the rest of the world doesn't get to see this? All these 30 nationalities having dinner together and enjoying being together. So anybody listening, if you have the opportunity to go to Loke World or to Gala or any other localization industry event, strongly recommend that you do so. Um, there's a lot of wonderful industry organizations that I think foster that that type of community, which is great. Um, and then at Trotto's, you know, it's funny because – you know, RWS unlocks global understanding. I maybe I should say Trados is the uh, is the uh, uh, locksmith because we like to say we you know we're providing the tools that help unlock global understanding. But one of the goals that we recently kind of put out there was we really want everybody to start thinking about how to translate everything, right? Not just certain languages and not just some of content, but really taking a step back and thinking, what would it require to translate everything that you do into every language? And obviously, we're not going to reach that goal anytime soon. There's lots of reasons why companies can't do that today. But I'm a big believer that you have to at least set the goal that you want to aspire to, no matter how long it takes to get there. And you know, as an LSP in this industry, how do you feel when you see something like translate everything does it sound like a good goal or does it sound completely unrealistic like what's your response when you hear that i mean as a businesswoman it's great it means a lot of business out there for sure but now i mean more as as a as a linguist or as someone who's been dreaming of uh, of that having everything understood by everybody at the beginning it's funny how at the beginning we thought of esperanto having a single language for everybody and now the moment has arrived that every language can be translated into every language. So we are finally reaching our Esperanto dream. It's great time. I love that. One thing I forgot to ask, thinking about the supply chain and thinking about how you interact with freelance translators. I assume you have freelance translators that you work with and the way that you work with clients who are requesting work. You're right there in the middle as an LSP, right? You're literally trafficking, you know, the content and the jobs back and forth and dealing with all the communications. Um, one, what's the most important thing as an LSP that you bring to the table as it relates to that supply chain? And then two, if there was one piece of advice that you could give to the client and the translators that work with you, what would it be given your unique position in, the, in that supply chain? Our role within the, the supply chain is, is very, very valuable because we are 
linguists. I, I never forget that. We work with freelancers, but we grow organically. We don't have like hundreds of freelancers working with us. We, we work with people that we know. And I find more often, more and more often, companies wanting to work with us because they know who they are going to be working with. You know, as, as opposed to large MLVs, which companies don't really know who is in charge of their translations. I get to see my clients wanted to talk to the linguists in direct talks. I, I really think it's a very good, good uh, middle point there. Linguists love working with the smaller companies because they feel they are they are vulnerable and they feel that we invite them to our Christmas parties, of course. So we get together and I, I do really think that person, person-to-person relationship is becoming more important. As technology grows uh, more AI, I think that human side is becoming more important doing business. So that's why we, we're always going to be there because business is done by humans, <laughs> not by machines, and that's very important. And then as a piece of advice, I always say my, that my students, please, first of all, get rid of your art artist ego egos, <laughs> because it's true they, they they come out of university think that, that that they are artists, and it's good. I mean, of course, you are creative people, and you have and you are eager to to create texts in different languages, and you feel, but you just get rid of your ego. It, it doesn't go with with the industry. And on the client side, that would be my, my advice to, to linguists coming to the industry. I would say yeah, younger generations. And then for, for end clients, my recommendation would be, first of all, think about what you need. We are all growing into cheaper, 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 but then we decide to spend more and more on other things that probably they are not as needed as really getting a, a good quality output. So really think about, because sometimes companies think that, okay, I need to buy this latest thing because everybody has that. But do I really need it? Do I really, is something that is going to add value for me? Or is it something I can stop and wait and see? In technology, I never like to go first. I like to wait and see and test and try, but I never install the latest release of the program until, no. I tested, I tested, but I never put it into the process <laughs> after at least, I don't know, the, the, the second batch or release is, is uh, the second release is, is, is being issued. So I would really recommend companies to stop, stop for a while and think about the, the steps, the steps to follow that are going to make them bigger, not poor. <laughs> right. So be, be, um, be careful. Be, Be you know, put some thought into it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Community really matters. Um, business is done human to human, and uh, translators need to check their artistic ego at the door. And clients really need to think a bit more about, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, I think that's great advice. Uh, I want to thank you. Rosario for joining us and giving us your insights and sharing with us a little bit about your history. And uh, I would encourage everybody to stay tuned for uh, the next episode in this series where we will be interviewing a corporation, you know, the, the, the client side of the supply chain. Um, and then 
if you actually listen to all three, you'll get a pretty good sense of what this uh, process looks like from end to end. Uh, but anyway, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me.